0: Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight Podcast. This is Chase Collum, Special Projects Editor, PEI Media. Last week, I sat down with Alistair Goldfisher from Venture Capital Journal, Chris Wachowski from Buyouts, and Graham Bippert from Private Fund CFO. And we talked about the implications of the new Democrat-majority federal government on private equity and venture capital investors. One week into the Biden administration, I'm back for another conversation about politics at work, despite my personal reservations about having those conversations at work. Uh, this week, I'm gonna sit down with Arshia Kular and Kyle Campbell from Private Equity Real Estate, or Perry. I am also joined by Chris Janiak of Agriculture Investor and Jordan Stutz from Infrastructure Investor we're going to talk about the implications of the new government on real asset investing in the United States and what ways it will change under the new government. So personally, having worked at Infrastructure Investor in the early days of my private equity journalism career, I'm partial to want to start with that topic. Actually, several years ago, while I was at Infrastructure Week in Washington, D.C., I was uh, invited to sit in on a few afternoon speeches at the Bloomberg government headquarters on Case Street. And one of the speakers was none other than Vice President Joe Biden. You know, just like everyone else that week and at Infrastructure Week in general, Biden spoke about how infrastructure, an infrastructure package has bipartisan support. It's one of the big things that people always say about infrastructure. But as anyone who's followed the sector will know, support is one thing. And I I use air quotes and political will is entirely another. And no government yet this century has really been able to pass a meaningful infrastructure package in the United States. So with that, Jordan, let's start with you and let's start with a big one. Will this government be able to pass an infrastructure spending package or should we just expect more of the same at the federal level?
1: The, the view from the infrastructure market in terms of the likelihood of a large federal spending package that creates investment opportunities is really a, a mixed bag. On one hand, there is real optimism that with Biden as president, he will follow through on a campaign promise to tie pandemic economic recovery with infrastructure spending as a way to create jobs. There's also a feeling that Democrats, which now hold the Senate by the slimmest of margins, as well as the House, are eager to see how much the climate-friendly and fossil fuel enemy Green New Deal uh, they can push through Congress. But on the other hand, investors I've spoken with can't avoid expressing a sense that, simply, we've been here before, like you said, Chase. Optimism for infrastructure reform at the start of a new presidential administration with nothing major ever really materializing. So... Overall, it seems like investors are intrigued by the rhetoric about infrastructure that they've heard so far, but I don't think anyone is ready to say now is finally the time for large parts of the U.S. market to open for investment.
0: Okay. And so just real quickly, I mean, is there any sort of a plan for infrastructure from the Biden administration that's been put forward so far?
1: Uh, There has been a plan uh, put forward, and again, it's very climate-heavy, even on sectors of infrastructure that typically don't touch on the environment. Whenever you think about climate-friendly projects, you obviously go to renewables and oil and gas industry, but he wants to see to it on things like transportation, really pushing things like electric vehicle charging stations, for instance. But uh, key for our audience, investors, uh, there hasn't been a lot of detail on How much of the Biden infrastructure plan that's been put forth so far will draw in private capital, which, uh, again, it's important to note that that's something Democrats traditionally have been hesitant about, uh, introducing private ownership and management of public infrastructure. So even if a large-scale package is passed, the devil will be in the details as to how much that actually impacts investors.
0: Are there any interesting appointments in the administration that you're looking at from an infrastructure perspective that you'll be watching to see what sort of moves they'll be making in the coming months? Sure. Yeah, I'll
1: just run through a few notable ones really quickly. In Congress, the committees and committee members that investors need to to pay attention to now includes the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation and the incoming chairwoman, Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington State. She's been a reliable environmental advocate. Another committee to keep an eye out for is the Senate Committee on Finance uh, and the incoming Chairman Rod Myden from Oregon. Uh, As we'll probably discuss later on, uh, tax legislation is an area that will be interesting to watch as many investors believe Democrats will try to push through measures aimed at supporting renewable energy development and capping oil and gas drilling. Outside of Congress, we got a a note is Biden's high-profile nomination of Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, to be the next Transportation Secretary, which received a lot of attention earlier this month. Buttigieg competed with Biden on the presidential campaign trail and even received criticism from Biden's camp at the time for having little large-scale infrastructure management experience whenever he was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. But still, many believe Buttigieg got the nod over other contenders for the secretary position because he's a new face in politics and is well-spoken, meaning he'll be able to win over younger support and enthusiasm for a topic typically viewed as slow and boring like infrastructure.
0: So, Chris, I heard that Tom Vilsack is the pick for secretary of agriculture. I mean, what do you make of that choice? And are there any other folks that you're going to be looking out for from the administration in the coming months?
2: Absolutely, there are. And, and if I can just quickly pile in a little bit on the infrastructure thing, you know, this is something that obviously for the managers that we speak to is not as central as it is uh, to the coverage on a publication like Infra. But it is something that, that people watch. We cover a variety of markets. We, we look at farmland markets, agribusiness markets, a wide variety of stuff that involves agriculture in the developing world. But in some of the core farmland markets, they can look at an infrastructure package as something that could potentially create demand for land to put solar panels on. So that could play a role in, in farmland markets. There's also been some suggestion that uh, a large infrastructure package could take a broad enough view to take in things like even a solar panel portion of that could include farmland fallowing programs, which are often, you know, part of strategies to try and conserve water and, and use them in more effective ways. Like you said, obviously, um, Vilsack's appointment is the thing that's sort of most clear and, and front and center. And I think here, you know, the obvious message to say is that, you know, the Biden administration is going to be formulating policy in an environment where we're sort of coming out of a period where our political system in the United States really hasn't been functioning well. And so one way to view that crisis is as a divide between rural and urban populations. And so I think there were some people who saw the, the appointment of Vilsack as a signal of continuity. He's a figure that had held the same position during the Obama administration. He's been involved with the Dairy Export Council in the years since, and he's been very you know proactive about trying to support expanding market access for American agriculture, but obviously – well-plugged into all of the rural issues that, you know, looking at the USDA are traditionally going to be caring very, very much about. One other thing to add here I think is is relevant is just sort of to think about the broader environment within the Biden administration. You know, one way to think about it is we're looking for tension between centrists and progressives, and there had been some suggestion that the USDA role might be given to Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who – you know, has been an advocate for uh, increasing access to farmland for groups that have traditionally been excluded and trying to boost the role that the USDA plays in bolstering nutrition assistance through the SNAP program. And so the, the fact that that appointment didn't end up happening, I think, shows us something about how agriculture is very likely to be an important battleground for a lot of these bigger picture issues that are gonna frame the policy environment. So for agriculture, the the policy areas that are most direct have to do with crop support policies, ethanol waivers that that were given by the Trump administration to fossil fuel producers that have impacted that market. And there's obviously the bigger question of of trade. In the future, there's gonna be a lot of debates around antitrust policy and redistribution uh, policies. And in that context, I think agriculture is a a really, really important window to be watching for investors and and just people trying to understand the political environment more broadly.
0: Right. Yes, I can definitely see agriculture becoming a flashpoint in the next few years here, you know, as the administration looks to sort of spread its policy wings. So let's talk about now real estate, Uh, Arshia and Kyle, are there any committee level changes that you folks are looking out for at the federal level?
3: Not committee level uh, chase, but I wanted to come back to the infrastructure spending package. I don't know whether Jordan would agree if affordable housing is categorized as an infra play or a real estate play. There's been a huge debate uh, amongst both our titles as to where it falls. But the Biden administration has proposed significant spending towards affordable housing. I'm just going to throw some numbers out there. They plan to spend 640 billion over the next ten years towards uh, housing policy initiatives is <laughs> $100 billion of this specifically will be in an affordable housing fund. Great news for the real estate developers. Uh, the administration wants to encourage more development of affordable housing units. They want to provide more tax incentives. They want to expand the low-income housing tax incentive program. And more importantly, they want to reform the zoning initiatives. We don't really know how much of this would be implemented. All of this was proposed last February. But if it does, this is going to be a step in a positive regard for the real estate. State industry because uh, the public and the private side have often been sparring over the role private capital can play in affordable housing. That there's always been this debate whether opportunistic returns can be generated from an affordable housing investment. Ultimately, of course, it all depends on whether it makes economic sense for private capital to enter into affordable housing. But we know the extent to which COVID has exacerbated housing affordability crisis globally and in the US. And so if the administration is willing to spend so much capital into building more housing, the real estate industry is definitely going to watch out for this.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, infrastructure really is at the heart of a lot of what happens with the real assets. Thanks for bringing that up as well, Arshia. Kyle, did you have anything to add on to that or looking at the the federal level, anything about the committee appointments or any uh, other appointments that you're looking out for? Yeah. So
4: I think Arshia is absolutely right to put the focus on Affordable housing—that's definitely going to be a top priority for the Biden administration, and uh, so that leads us to uh, housing and urban development. And Chris mentioned Marsha Fudge, who was passed over for agricultural uh, secretary, but she's been nominated for the head of HUD. So you know she's going to be you know right at the middle of all the affordable housing initiatives that Arshia just described. And when I look at her as a nominee, I see something that's a bit of a trend throughout. Biden's full cabinet selection, uh, which is just a little bit of a return to a traditional, you know, head for the department. Previously, before serving in Congress, she was a mayor of a city in suburban Cleveland. You know, so she has experience dealing with more on the ground issues like housing. A few other key cabinet positions that are also going to play a role on policy that's going to touch real estate also come from backgrounds that are a little bit more traditional uh, in the sense that, you know, you have someone who's going to be in charge of the EPA, who, you know, is a former federal regulator and, you know, most recently the top environmental regulator for the state of North Carolina, which is Michael Regan. So he is the nod for EPA uh, administrator for Biden, whereas uh, his counterpart under the Trump administration at least initially with Scott Pruitt, who was someone who kind of made his career on suing the EPA and, and challenging the EPA's various regulations. So it's definitely going to be a pro-regulation administration, and it's definitely going to be made up of people who were connected to their posts prior to taking uh, the office. So yeah, I would certainly look out for the policies that come through on affordable housing uh, in terms of funding. From what I've heard, you know, Biden is trying to Increase the low-income housing tax credit by $10 billion over the next 10 years. That's, you know, a key financial instrument for building, acquiring, and redeveloping affordable housing in the U.S. I mean, it's it's not a huge figure, but I think the current budget is about $8 billion annually. So, I mean, it's it's a significant step up, about a billion a year. Also, uh, Section 8 housing vouchers are supposed to be a priority as well. You know, just to give a little bit of background for those who aren't sort of familiar with that. Uh, world, there's quite a long backlog of people who've applied for uh, vouchers through the Section 8 program, which essentially means you only have to pay 30% of your take-home pay on housing. So that's a huge issue for people who are working service jobs, minimum wage jobs, You because know, affording you know, $2,000 in rent is, is tough when you're making $10 to $15 an hour. That does touch on the private equity real estate world. There are managers who do specialize in structures that target that part of the income bracket. So that that will be influential, at least on the margins. And it's certainly something that is of interest to investors who want to sort of have a social bent with their investing.
0: Right. That's obviously a huge agenda item for a lot of folks these days, uh, especially after the racial justice movements that sparked up last summer. So Arshia, actually, I wanted to ask you about one of the other really interesting trends in real estate right now that has come up. In our conversations, de urbanization. Is the pandemic accelerating this trend? And how, you know, how is the federal government, the new federal government, likely to play a part in this over the coming months?
3: But to me, what would be interesting would be whether or not you know this entire stimulus package and all of this funding that's going to go into the big gateway cities like new york and california whether it's economic packages whether it's real estate targeted stimulus all of that could perhaps reverse the deurbanization urbanization trend i mean we've been seeing for a couple of years it wasn't just COVID, but even before COVID, there was a migration of talent, of homeowners away from these big cities. Again, some data to put these things in context. Real Capital Analytics, which is a, a transactions house, just put out this interesting data where Dallas was in fact the leading market for U.S. commercial real estate investment volumes in 2020. Total deal volume was $19.7 billion. And Manhattan, um, you know, all these glossy skyscrapers and, and the peak of institutional investment investment. investment had 13 billion in uh, sales volumes last year. And in fact, Manhattan was in the fifth position, which is the lowest position since RCA has been publishing these rankings. So big cities like Manhattan have been seeing a massive exodus of uh, investment. But I'll probably ask this question to Kyle, uh, could we see a reversal of this trend um, if places like New York start recovering because of the stimulus?
4: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's what the hope is, I think, for a lot of managers who are heavily invested in New York, in San Francisco, Chicago, the sort of traditional office markets. But it is definitely a big question mark because, as you pointed out rightly, this is not a 11-month trend. It's probably an 11-year trend, maybe even a little bit longer, of companies and people relocating to lower-cost cities, mostly in the the Sunbelt region. The Trump administration helped this process along through a tax policy, which is called the SALT tax deduction. It's the state and local tax. It's a little bit of an offset for homeowners and taxpayers in uh, these high cost regions, you know, New York, California. And when that deduction was removed, it, it basically shot the tax bill up for those individuals substantially. So uh, it made the value proposition of, you know, going to a place that does not have a state income tax, you know, all the more appealing. So individuals who could make that move made the move, companies that could make the move sort of followed those people there. Unless there's some substantial change in the tax code to alter that, I don't necessarily see it being a huge game changer uh, in terms of the long term trend of migration, but certainly a supportive federal government is going to stop the bleeding for for these big cities.
0: Sure. And while we're on the subject of taxes, uh, are there any tax rules that you expect to be updated that will impact real estate investors in particular, perhaps as it relates to private equity real estate funds, Kyle?
4: Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest appeals to investing in real estate is the tax advantages that come with it, And there's a number of proposals that the Biden campaign made that could really shift the paradigm for real estate investment uh, if they actually go into place. And the three of them that the industry is sort of paying the most attention to is the elimination of the 1031 exchange, which essentially allows someone who sells a property to take the proceeds from that sale. Roll them into another property and avoid having to pay taxes on you know the gains from an appreciation of the property. So kind of a niche thing, and you know as far as private real estate goes, I mean there's some debate over how significant it is. A lot of managers don't actually need to use these types of mechanisms because of you know the structure of their funds and the the fact that the underlying investors are tax exempt for the most part. But it's still a concern because it may slow down the overall transaction volume and sort of like have a a depreciating impact on pricing and the same goes for another proposed change from the biden campaign which is the elimination and the step up in basis of a property upon death of the owner when it transfers to yeah usually a, a child or a dependent of some sort again it's sort of a niche thing but a lot of estate planning goes behind sort of policies like this. It's, it's going to essentially make the appeal of real estate less over time if you know people who are looking for things to do with their money know they can't just you know, have this as an asset that can be easily passed down to the next generation. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is the capital gains loophole elimination, which would essentially treat capital gains the same as regular earned income and that's something that is an issue across all of private markets pretty much all of investing because that's how investment managers are compensated for the most part but also capital gains can apply to real estate investments as well so overall if those things go into effect it would have sort of a chilling effect on transaction volumes and pricing which private real estate is going to be pretty concerned about
0: now, one thing I obviously that's a, it's a major issue right now, I mean, if you look at the administration, one of the first executive orders that President Joe Biden signed was to reenter the Paris Climate Accord. So obviously, environmental policy is a huge driver in terms of what people are expecting from this administration. You know, I think when you go back and look at the numbers, uh, there was still quite a bit of green development during the Trump administration. So there was a lot of fear that his pro-oil stance would be an anti-green energy stance or an anti-greening stance, but it really didn't end up being that so much as it was a pro-fossil fuel and pro-energy independence agenda. So now let's look at this Environmental policy that we're expecting. Let's start with Jordan and go around the table. How will this new Biden administration and this Democrat majority government impact climate policy in the United States? And how will that impact your, your sector?
1: Thanks, Chase. Yeah, <clears throat> I think Lady Gaga had just finished singing the national anthem by the time Biden had signed an executive order to re enter the Paris Agreement. It was literally one of the first things he did. The environmental agenda for Democrats is clear. It's let's go clean. And green right now. The question is by how much the progressive part of the party is pushing for strict caps on oil and natural gas drilling. But Biden did make that key campaign promise that he would not go too hard on private natural gas drilling and fracking in particular. Uh, That was an attempt to win over voters in Pennsylvania and it paid off. However, uh, in the latest bit of news that just happened today, January twenty-sixth, Biden signed an executive order barring new oil and gas drilling leases on all federally owned land. So it really, uh, from Congress's point of view, I think that, at least from Democrats' point of view in Congress, they're going to try to go as far as they can with the Green New Deal. You'll have the the stray senators, such as West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who might not be as supportive of parts of the Green New Deal. But for overall, I think it's going to be something that Democrats in Congress champion. The challenge for Biden is going to be walking that tightrope between pushing a climate-friendly agenda and keeping some of the voters happy that supported him in the election.
0: Okay, sure. And Chris, what about you? Environmentally, what are you looking out for from this administration? And what impacts do you think any policy that the administration will put through will have positively or negatively on the agriculture sector?
2: Over the course of the past couple of months, you know, many of the managers who we speak to have been really, really focused on the idea of big picture policies that are designed to integrate agriculture into efforts to mitigate climate change. Specifically, there's been a a lot of focus on the idea that farmers can be paid to sequester carbon in soil. And so this is an idea that, you know, has been put forward, you know, by investors and think tanks for, you know, quite a bit, but it, it feels as if you know the broad consensus everybody has that covid sort of strengthened everybody's resolve to have a systemic approach to climate change carbon has been the place where that has sort of expressed itself most clearly so what we've seen is managers forming partnerships on kind of the picks and shovels types investments of the climate data that's needed to formulate the credits and the platforms that uh, manage the, the acres that are enrolled in the programs. We've started to see some matching of you know, existing farmland portfolios with companies that don't have farmland and are managing those things. And to a large extent, what that market is sort of benefiting from is everybody's reactions to these big-picture statements that have been coming out about how important climate change is to broader financial stability – and so a lot of people will point to a report by Goldman Sachs called Carbonomics Larry Fink's letter from last year. there was a new one released this morning that kind of doubled down on that that's always referred to um you know as, as sort of a key plank and what's been happening recently is we have corporates starting to buy carbon credits ahead of regulations well they you know they say they're doing it to meet internal goals there's one way to view that is to say they view those types of regulations as inevitable and they're trying to get that supply, you know, well handled now. And so we're starting to see conversations about sort of what are accurate or appropriate per ton carbon prices, how many tons of carbon can we realistically expect to sequester within an individual plot of farmland. And here, you know, at at this early stage, obviously, you know, there's little else that we can do than sort of look at personnel as policy. And so like a, a lot of other people, we've been watching closely the appointment of Brian Deese who had previously been with BlackRock managing their climate investments, had been with the Obama administration managing climate investments. He said that you know climate is going to be central to everything that they do. There's another key appointment that we've been watching closely in terms of this stuff specifically as it relates to the environment and carbon trading. There's a guy named Robert Bonney who is taking a position as a special advisor to the USDA. And he wrote a paper that was coming into the administration that was sort of laying out the role that the government should play in setting up things like carbon banks that might encourage food and agriculture to to account for, I think it was as much as 20 percent of the abatement that will need it to get to net zero. There's also this idea of these investments – provide an extra income stream for farmers. And, you know, uh, farmers are always a key political constituency for everybody. And everybody wants to bend over backwards to show how much they're doing for the small family farmer. The same guy, Robert Bonney, who wrote the report that's sort of framing the agenda around how to integrate carbon into ag, also wrote a paper about how to invest in rural communities, specifically with an eye towards building political support. And here, if I could just pile in very, very quickly on the urbanization thing, obviously urbanization you know, is the type of long-term trend that I think agriculture is particularly well-suited to allow us to think about in a little bit more practical way. So obviously, a lot of the managers who we speak to watch the growth and shrinking of cities very, very closely. I mentioned before there's a relationship to uh, solar panels and stuff. But I also think it's worth saying here that you know we're having this conversation at a time when our political conversation is starting to make room for things like civil war and discussion of things like secession. And we're also coming out of a period where COVID-19 created this really dramatic shock to the food system and the food supply chain We've had some, you know, certainly policymakers, investors, individuals have their own experience of the way they had to think about getting food differently in March and April, makes them think a little bit differently about the long term trajectory of things like you know, regionalization within the United States, regionalization, um, you know, within global trade. Obviously, those those are bigger picture questions. But I I think when we start to think about something like urbanization and the question of whether or not COVID may have changed the extent to which people want to live in cities, that's the kind of long term trend that absolutely would have an effect on farmland markets. But I think, you know, recently I've heard from more people who are trying to understand the way food supply has changed in response to COVID, how food supply chains have responded and trying to get a sense of how permanent those changes will be. And so in terms of policy, I'm going to be keeping an eye on that and certainly trying to watch the extent to which the Biden administration tries to bring together the effort to bring new income streams to farmers with the broader effort to try and address cleavages between urban and rural communities in the United States. Right. Okay.
0: There's one last topic that I want to talk about before we call it a day here. So let's zoom out a little bit and take a look from a global perspective. How do you think this new administration and this new Democrat majority government, the change will impact international relations, you know, more to the point, how will the new government impact the sentiment around inbound and outbound investments? Arshia, do you want to take that one first?
3: Yeah, so um, you know, all eyes are obviously going to be on what uh, Biden's relationship is going to be like with China, both on a political as well as economic front. We saw, uh, you know, the worsening trade tensions, whole of last year, really contributed to a complete decline in Chinese investment in the U.S. across industries and real estate was part of it. Uh, there was only ninety eight million in Chinese investments in the first half of last year, according to CBRE, which is as little as point eight percent of all foreign investments. And it goes both ways. You know, Uh, U.S. investors were wary of investing in China. Anecdotally speaking, there's an Asian manager who recently closed a value add fund. He was telling uh, me that uh, a lot of the U.S. investors who had invested in his previous vehicles were jittery. Their boards just did not want them to commit new capital to a China fund, given this whole noise around um, U.S.-China relations. Under a Biden administration, the hope is that he would engage more with China, um, have a less aggressive, less antagonistic approach. But will that mean a complete reversal of uh, CFIUS scrutiny? We don't think so. Um, CFIUS, of course, is uh, the agency that's uh, required to wet every foreign investment in the U.S. and real estate is now under its purview as well. So so a lot of it is a wait and watch. But the understanding among my conversations is that it's not going to be as uh, scrutinized as it was under Trump.
0: Okay, um, and what about you Chris? How do you think the new administration will either attract or detract from inbound or outbound investments in the agriculture sector?
2: Well, you know this is one of the things that I think makes food and agriculture a particularly interesting topic because it's it's a, a market that has a pretty direct connection. To social stability, so governments, you know, they have an incentive to keep an eye closely on uh, food trade and sort of managing it. Obviously, as an important part, sometimes of relations between states. So we saw agriculture really come to the center of the U.S.-China relationship and the trade component during the Trump administration. I think, uh, you know, as I said before, there are plenty of indications that Vilsack's focus will also be on extending access into new markets, and that's something that you know is obviously going to be watched very closely. I think, you know, broadly as as we think about our coverage from a global perspective, I think it's also relevant to say that, you know, sovereign wealth funds and public pensions are also under increasing pressure to invest at home. So we have some funds that have begun to establish portfolios that are largely overseas investments, sometimes based in real assets like farmland. As they move into things like processing and better parts of the value chain from their perspective, they're also coming into an environment where. Their local ag sectors are looking for some support, Uh, and so I think that's a something that will shape certainly the the way money tries to come out, uh, as as well as the receptivity coming in. I know I, I spoke to somebody recently who looks at this very closely, who had said, you know, during the Trump administration there was a lot of focus on China, which you know they expect to continue, but you know there was a, a pretty welcoming environment for money coming in from arab countries that they weren't so sure was going to be sustained at the same levels one of the things here to say also is just that you know when we think about covid-19 as as having had this huge disruption to global supply chains this is what a lot of people who i speak to are watching very very closely now with an eye towards these are our supply chains that don't change overnight but when there are changes they are significant and long lasting so i know there are people who watch very closely you know what kind of soybeans are being planted in Russia and Kazakhstan and all different types of places that over the long term might impact the way trade between the US and China works in agriculture but it's, it's just such a complicated picture because there have been things happening in China this year that have caused demand for product that has been divorced from the very political environment that it was initially framed in. So it's sort of too much to say Biden coming in will in and of itself have too direct of an effect. But I think generally the different approach to alliances and sort of a different outlook on international relations will certainly filter through to sentiment.
0: Genuinely, thanks to all of you for joining me today. It's been a really interesting conversation already. And I think there's definitely more conversation to be had around this, you know, in the coming weeks and months. So thanks to all our listeners for sticking around. I hope you uh, appreciate all these insights as much as I have. This is Chase Collum, Special Projects Editor, PEI Media.